We are doing another live episode of the Cracked Podcast. It is another one on the road. It's in a city we've never gone to before, in a country we have never gone to before. Please join us Sunday, September 8th for a one-night-only live episode at the London Podcast Festival. London, England, United Kingdom. Yes, that's correct. We have many British listeners tweeting me many times requesting a Cracked Podcast. This one time, this one day, it's going to happen. Links with full information are in the food notes. In the meantime, see you soon. Hey there, folks. Welcome to another episode of the Cracked Podcast, the podcast all about why being alive is more interesting than people think it is. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm the head of podcasting here at Cracked. I'm also known as Schmitty the Clam. I'm also known as Schmitty the Champ, and I am also... Also, thinking back to a show I used to make, a video show, because here is the topic of today's episode. It is great movie and TV moments made possible by running out of money. One more time, that is great movie and TV moments made possible by running out of money. One of the ways being alive is more interesting than people think it is, is that basically every movie and TV show and franchise and pop culture thing you love probably benefited from not having a big enough budget. We have an enormous range of the biggest movies and TV shows ever to talk about today. And yet, as I was thinking about these things, something about the, the process that these creators went through felt familiar. And I was like, uh, that doesn't make sense because I didn't make Star Wars personally. Uh, why is that? And it's because I thought of a show I used to do uh, for the Crack.com YouTube channel named New Guy Weekly. It was a while back. Uh, I hear about it from people occasionally, so I, I figure it's worth bringing up. And that was an amazing experience for me that uh, in particular benefited creatively from budget limitations. Uh, a little bit about my past. Uh, before I started working at Cracked, I was living in New York and I was doing some things remotely for the site. And then they said, hey, you should move out here in particular to make videos. We explicitly want you to be making videos. And so I said, great, I would love to be doing that. I'm doing that here already. Then on arrival, we were looking at some things that, that there would be a budget behind, but also I was thinking, hey, what can be done around the office very, very cheaply? I quickly settled on the medium of filming myself on my phone. I was like, that can be an entire thing. That can be an entire show. It doesn't cost anything. The thing is, that is very limiting. And the limitation was great because I said, hey, what kind of person would film an entire show on their own phone talking to themselves? And from there, a character blossomed, which was a, a version of me, but maybe not so smart, maybe kind of irritating in, I think, a funny way. I hope so. We will link to that show because it's from a while ago if you want to see it. But either way, this is a process that you can see across all of entertainment. I feel grateful to have experienced it as a creator. And my guests today are all fantastic TV writers and comedians. I'm joined by Hallie Cantor, Chase Mitchell, and Ben Joseph, all returning guests to the show, all uh, old pals of mine, and, and just really, really sharp and fantastic on uh, knowing about these franchises and knowing about the process of making things like that. They're all working writers who are doing it right now. I also highly recommend you check them out and follow them on Twitter and everything, so there's going to be all kinds of food notes of them. And either way, I really hope you'll enjoy this show where we dig into, again, the very biggest TV shows and movies where you think they were made that way on purpose the whole time, and actually, it was just a financial limitation that made good things happen. So please sit back, 
or sit on some kind of milk crate or or loose old wooden spool or something because you don't have enough money for a chair. I think that's the start of an amazing sitting situation if it works like Hollywood works. Either way, here's this episode of the Cracked Podcast with Hallie Cantor, Ben Joseph, and Chase Mitchell. I'll be back after we wrap up. Talk to you then. One by one, Chase Mitchell, let's hear your voice. Hey, it's me. Oh, that's Chase. And then Ben Joseph, let's hear your voice. This is Ben's voice. And Hallie Cantor, let's hear your voice. This is my voice. Oh, good. And this is me, Alex. So we're, we're talking today about times when shows and movies ran out of money, and that was good. That was a good thing. I feel like it's, it's one of the few times we can be stoked about stuff going broke. Really good. <laughs> one I knew about as a kid because I was that into Monty Python is the old story about Monty Python and the Holy Grail where they, uh, they, they turned to coconuts instead of horses because they just they didn't have the money for horses and they thought it would be really fun. I, I did not know that that was a money. Did you guys know that before? I did too. I don't know where I heard it. I can't imagine that movie with horses. Like trying, yeah. like it'd be terrible. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, like that is. It's such a good running joke in one of the like funniest movies of all time. Yeah, I, maybe I heard it in like the DVD commentary or something like that. Because I do remember getting the DVD and being very proud of it when I was a freshman in college, which is a very <laughs> freshman in college so thing. Cool. To feel, oh, yeah. yeah. I will say this. I feel like this <laughs> thesis pops up, thesis or whatever it is, this pops up in comedies a lot especially because yeah. something you do for no money will almost always be funnier than the thing you like go all out <laughs> on. I think one not on our list that I'll just bring up is uh, the first Austin Powers. They have, oh, great. They have that joke about uh, he wants sharks with laser beams attached to his head, to their heads. Yeah. And his uh, number two says, oh, we can't afford that, which was literally the reason they didn't have sharks with laser beams attached <laughs> to their heads. I didn't know that. <laughs> Something of a meta joke. Yeah. And, and it's also really interesting because the third Austin Powers, which opens with this horrible, like, Tom Cruise fake Austin Powers movie within a movie. And the third one especially, which is kind of this just Mike Myers victory lap. They actually have the sharks with laser beams attached to their heads. And it's so much wow. less funny than what's the sea bass is the first one. The, the unseen sharks with laser beams. Yeah. yeah. Well, I wonder if it's like that, that thing that people say about horror movies, which, you know, the thing that you don't see is scarier than the thing you do. So maybe the thing that you don't see is also funnier than the thing you do. I feel like that is played as a joke a lot of times in comedies where like characters are like watching a sex tape or something and you just see their faces being like, oh, no. And it's like it would never be funny if you saw what was on the actual tape they're watching but like it's because your imagination produces the most comedy of all is anybody doing jaws have we talked no, about oh yeah i, I yeah. thought about this last night and i was wondering why it wasn't on the list and i i, I don't know if it's oh, I, I think yeah. it might be because it was more of a technical issue and not a money issue because the shark just didn't work but it is yeah. one of the ones yeah. that i think about the most often where like the shark didn't work and so he was forced to shoot around it and we do never true. see the shark and jaws no you do, do but, but whatever you do it's kind of like it's a little rubbery it's a little mm. sort of stilted Another thing from when I was a freshman in college and was getting a lot of Your DVDs. Your heyday. Uh, really my, my peak, yeah. Uh, was a, I got a lot of like Robert Rodriguez movies on DVD, and he does a lot of special features on his DVD about like how to shoot on a shoestring budget and he cool. a lot of just like shoot around kind of stuff. And like he's kind of the uh, one of the like masters of that, of like figuring out ways to like – but yeah, he, he – has entire many documentaries on his DVDs where he talks about how he sidesteps those money issues, uh, which is really fascinating. Wow. Yeah. I felt like most of the entertainment I've loved has been sort of created by a lack of money, but maybe it's just all of it. Just everything. <laughs> it, it seems to be a constant. Yeah. Well, it does seem like, I don't know, it's 
easier for me to be creative under like a lot of restraints. So like not physically. Yeah, please. No worries. <laughs> That's why all the writers' rooms I'm part of need to have handcuffs on the table. <laughs> um, it does sort of force brains to like work in more interesting ways that that end up being funnier as a result. There is the the concept of the, the blank check movie where you know you make <laughs> right. your you make your best movie under restrictions and adver- adversity and when you actually get the money to do to sort of do the do it, finally do it right that's when you mess up. Every show that I've been on when we got a ton of like annoying notes we would always step 1 was always complain about the notes. Yeah. <laughs> and then step 2 was like figure out how to make it funny again and then a lot of time I will say a lot of times even though the the notes were really fucking annoying a lot of times when we got to the end, we were like, this is funnier than what we had before. I Even have to just admit. Maybe because yeah. it requires you to like take the extra step and go beyond like the first thought thing. Even if yeah. like the actual note was not good, like the fact that it requires you to spend more time on something, maybe. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, totally. right. no, cause, yeah Another you, pass. Yeah. Because yeah. money lets you be lazy. For instance, with that Monty Python and the Holy Grail thing, they wanted to have horses in the movie because it's a movie and you can see them. And then once they couldn't, it's like that thing you mentioned, Hallie, of an extra, extra just think through or an extra pass or something where they were like, oh, if we can't have horses, what do we do? And then they went to what BBC Radio did where just the sound effect for horses <laughs> was coconuts. <laughs> and then they said, oh, okay, we'll do that thing from radio. And I'm glad we kept thinking about it because otherwise we would have had to learn to ride horses and would have taken right. forever. Terrible. I will say the only thing about that one that kind of bummed me out reading about it was that they had kind of borrowed the joke from the BBC thing. Because apparently the BBC, yeah. they had also <laughs> called it out at one point. They had done like a meta joke about it. It's, oh, it's a guy walking with coconuts on his feet. I was like, oh, Monty Python kind of. Yeah. Monty Python is <laughs> but, canceled. <listen. laughs> but they have, you know, 10,000 other jokes that they invented. So. That almost works better on radio. I hope they went like 40 episodes <laughs> before, before acknowledging like, yeah. oh, this thing you thought was a horse the entire time. What if oh, every yeah. radio show before that had been using real horses like, in the studio? <laughs> There's no other way. There has to be a better way. <laughs> Wait, hold on. Rewind that. Well, we don't have that technology. Right? <laughs> when uh, and then after that, like so many of these examples are like Jaws or or uh, Austin Powers or other massive movies that a lot of people have seen. Maybe we jump straight to Star Wars. Hey, Star Wars, that's a famous movie. Yeah, and, never uh, heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> and I think uh, I think Chase, you had picked out this story from the very first Star Wars. I did, yeah. And this is something that I didn't know, and I did, but I did know just from being a kid and reading everything about Star Wars that I could. I think I even at a young age was aware of how much paring down of the script had happened. If you've ever read up on like the original script draft of Star Wars, like from Luke being named like Luke Starkiller to, you know, all, all this insane stuff that somehow made its way to what we know as Star Wars. Somewhere along the way, all the stuff that happened with Leia being a prisoner on the Death Star happened on Alderaan. And so there were going to be scenes that were shot there and... Instead of doing all of that, somewhere along the way, they made the decision to just have Alderaan explode. Um, <laughs> so they didn't have to build those sets. <laughs> but they did convenient. build the real planet and then yeah. explode it, which seems more did, expensive. Yeah. <laughs> His decision was just to commit fictional genocide rather than building those sets. Uh, very convenient workaround. Uh, but it's hard to imagine Star Wars without all that stuff happening. It seems like such a good fix, like similar to the coconut thing. Like, I can't imagine that whole sequence not happening on the Death Star. Like, for that to happen on Alderaan, right. it's it's such a step down. 
Uh, we don't need to see that planet. All oh, those people are so expendable. <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and the Death Star is so interesting. It's yeah. such an interesting setting to do anything on. It hadn't really been a thing before in a movie. Like, yeah, so like, why would you yeah. delay getting to the Death Star? It's, it's such a... So cool. Like, a planet-sized evil villain's lair had never really been done before, as far as I know. I remember especially seeing the prequels, because that's that blank check thing. Now you have all this money to make mm-hmm. the prequels. Right. They show us everything they could possibly show us. Right. We see, and then it leads to a bunch of scenes of like trade federation diplomacy. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, nothing <laughs> I want. Maybe having too much money was a problem as soon as they had it. Are you saying the pod racing scenes were not incredible? Mm-hmm. Oh, those were cool, yeah. <laughs> I kind of defend the pod racing. I think it was Yeah, I think the pod, pod racing is cool. Yeah. I think it just doesn't serve any it story. Just didn't story. Fit. Yeah, yeah. It just doesn't serve any story purpose you in that movie. You feel them, even as a kid, I could feel them like stretching to include right. that. Like yeah. it's like It's like the Quidditch sequences in a Harry Potter totally, movie. Totally. Yeah. Where it's like, this feels like things are happening because things are moving fast. It was like, like not the plot. We, we referred to Anakin as a pilot. So being a race car driver is like sure. kind of similar. Because <laughs> then also with the situation of not having the money to see Alderaan where it just blows up. It feels like they didn't quite get around. There's one negative of it. They didn't quite get around to fixing the emotional beats after that. Because because yes. This, oh, I, I was yeah. I, this this is honestly something that I never really thought about until very recently. But yeah, you have there's a scene of Leia like consoling Luke because yeah. he just lost Obi Wan, and it's like. <laughs> Wait a second. She just lost everyone she's ever known in her huh. entire life. Everyone, all of her Facebook friends from high school. You know what? Uh, That's the most realistic part of the movie. The woman does the emotional labor for a man. Because <laughs> it, it makes them both nuts. Like, yeah. why is Leia consoling him? Yeah. And why is he not like, don't worry about me. Uh, everyone you know. Yeah. Uh, everything. You might not know she's from Older on. Oh, That's yeah. true. Yeah. Didn't come up. Didn't, you know why? You know why? It was the first date and he didn't ask her any questions. Yeah. Typical guy. <laughs> like, hey, do you have any siblings? <laughs> that could have saved a lot of trouble for yeah. everybody. <laughs> Linda and, and Hallie, you mentioned horror. Why don't we jump to Halloween? Yeah, what let's talk thing? Halloween. I want to talk about this because I actually watched Halloween for the first time a couple of weeks ago. Whoa. And I was very <laughs> nervous because I avoid horror movies generally. And it turned out to not be scary at all. <laughs> I, um, actually, I had the same experience really? like a year or two ago. Yeah. It sucked. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. Sorry, we're, sorry. We're, I came on oh, this podcast. I'm no. hijacking this to bl- put Halloween on blast. Fuck wow. you, John Carpenter. Oh, I didn't realize we were going to fight for the rest of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I'll, okay. I'll, I'll talk about the theme of the podcast, yeah. which is... Okay, who well, gets to flip the table over? <laughs> I think it's... it's My opinion on it is... is you know, heavily related to what we're talking about today, which is the, it's very like bare bones. And a lot of that is because, you know, they, there was not money to make things, yeah. you know, like super scary. Like um, Mike Myers, you know, was going to have like a more like scary mask that was at least unique or made for the movie. And then they like ran out of money. So they just like went down to the corner store and like got a shitty Halloween mask. Yeah. That, um, uh, specifically a uh, Captain Kirk. Yes. Yeah, the the Captain Kirk yeah. mask. <laughs> yeah. And like, just like, you know, instead of having like spooky, like special effectsy monsters, it was like, what if the scary thing was just like a guy standing there? Like maybe, you know, the cheapest version is actually the thing that's going to be most scary. And viewing it through a modern eye, 
It does not work. But I could see how at the time, <laughs> maybe that was like a new thing. So it was like, whoa, like the scariest thing of all is like just a guy and you don't understand his motivations and you don't understand what he's doing. He's just like standing there for two hours and then killing people. Yeah. <laughs> um, and like, you know, the, the score even is like very bare bones because did John Carpenter yeah, make it? Yeah. He did it himself and it's just like, I was listening to it on the car on the way here to it get psyched. I was like, right? Is that <laughs> no, it? That's no, that's the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone. <laughs> it's, but it's something that's like, what is it? It is right. It's repetitive. Does anybody yeah. have it in their mind? Anyway. Um, oh, why, why can't I pull it up? I literally was just listening to it and I was like, I'm going to forget this. But anyway, it's like a very simple kind of repetitive piano, like couple is keys thing. Is it just thing. like... Yes, there we go. Oh, there we go. Nailed it. That is pretty spooky and scary. Just watching it now, I think I had psyched myself up for way more scary stuff and it turns out the whole movie is just like a bunch of teenagers like going back and forth across the street between two houses, babysitting. I would say that's it. If I could, if I could mount a please uh, defense, defend Halloween. defense for the movie, I I think it's one of those things, and I've experienced other examples of this in other genres and stuff. But it's one of those movies that's been imitated so many times yes. that if you come to the original late in life, you yeah. very right. much are because like because we now where, take it for like, granted because of, yeah. it's been an influence on so many things. Yes, so it was with the exception of like Black Christmas before it and and like if you consider like psycho a slasher movie it's one of the first slasher movies and so many of the techniques used in it from like the pov of the killer and 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 stuff like that like it was an innovator that now when you look back on it it feels kind of quaint it's similar to like looking back on like bride of frankenstein or something like that and being like what's supposed to be scary about this but yeah (laughs) Yeah, but like at that time you have to consider like People were scared of like a train coming at the screen. So like a story, a story about a monster yeah, yeah. was was crazy to them. And so like the, a story about a, a down to earth killer yeah. who could really feasibly exist, whose face is William Shatner, which is I can't imagine anything scarier. Um, <laughs> yeah, it felt Wait. like a real and speaking of threat. Psycho, uh, another cost cutting thing that they did was like so Janet Lee, the star of Psycho, uh, her daughter is Jamie Lee Curtis. Yeah, is that correct? And uh, that's like part of why she was cast in this movie because they were like, we need <laughs> the free publicity, like we can't pass this up. And so that I think turned out to be a case where like being broke and, and needing that money like launched a huge iconic career yeah. and. Yeah. yeah. Go nepotism. Yeah, we, we, we wouldn't have true lies if John Carpenter yeah. wasn't so cheap. Because <laughs> the, the casting in that movie, I remember seeing it, it was two years ago, I think, for the first time. And I was surprised by the opening credits because before you even see the title, you see the name of Donald Pleasance. Because he, they cast him. He was the, to be was he the guy who plays the doctor. Yeah, yeah. and he, he was. It, yeah, he was. He'd been like a villain in in the James in James Bond movies. He'd been yeah. like a character actor for many many years. Yeah, in so this he was. Movie, he was he's just a get. guy who like wanders around being like. He's so scary yeah. and unhinged, but like he never so interacts his, with the main action at and all. And his, right. his part in like the sequels gets even more ridiculous because he's literally just running around like, you don't understand. <laughs> he's trying to kill people. And it's like what, people, I feel like people would have gotten the memo by now. Right. That he's murdered several 
dozens. Yeah, why did they still need the guy teams. being like, you don't understand, he's dangerous. Like, the proof is in the dead teenagers. <laughs> right, it's also the not killing. something supernatural, like he turns into a werewolf when you're not looking. He yeah. He's just a dude who likes to stab people. Like, that's, yeah. <laughs> it should yeah. not be that hard of a sell. <laughs> <laughs> that thing where he isn't really interacting with anybody mm-hmm. is because this was such a small movie that uh, Donald Pleasance was a huge deal that they only had for like a day in, in their uh, world. Donald's you know? only going to do one uh, day. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's why he's randomly just in a bush and and looking and oh, that's wow. all you get or he's not talking to anybody. That's really interesting. And yeah, and then like you say, Jamie Lee Curtis was a get just because of her parent, even though now you would think, oh, they cast right. her because she's perfect. Because of the activity right. commercials. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we need someone who looks like they're going to sell yogurt in the future. <laughs> Honestly, when I was watching it, I was like, she looks like a future yogurt. <laughs> no, I Being- mostly was like, she looks 35. <laughs> they're all supposed to be playing like 16 year olds. Like you say, Chase, it, it invented kind of everything. And so yeah. like I, I remember seeing it for the first time and thinking, why are they lingering so much on? Mm-hmm. They hurt him and he gets back up and he's okay. Yeah. And the person I was with was like, they that had never yeah, been done before. Because they didn't do that. That yeah. was surprising yeah. to people that he got back up. It probably was the first movie where you just wanted to like fucking yell at the screen, like, no, make sure he's dead before you just go stand <laughs> up and like call your friend. Right, right. She gets up so many times when he's like barely incapacitated. <laughs> oh, and turns her back to him. Like, yeah. Why, what are you yeah. doing? You should be yeah. on alert. <laughs> just common sense. And then maybe another movie that that just invented kind of movies is Citizen Kane. And this comes up in Seven Times Being Totally Cheap resulted in Movie Magic by Carolyn Burke. Uh, Citizen Kane had a budget like it was it was eight hundred thousand dollars, which at the time was was a regular normal movie budget. That sounded kind of huge to me. I was surprised by that. I was ballparking uh, from articles like what were 1940s movie budgets? And that was not a B movie. Like that was an A movie. That was a regular movie. Uh, But they needed to depict the life of the richest, craziest man. They needed to uh, do a version of William Randolph Hearst. And in real life, he had a 60,000 square foot castle full of animals and he European art. should have pulled art. a George Lucas and just like exploded his castle in the first scene. <laughs> <laughs> it was really incredible. Too bad it's gone. The rest of the movie takes place in a diner. Yeah. <laughs> but man, um, you should have seen that house. It was huge. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, and so Orson Welles, who had never made a movie before, needed to figure out how to film the, the most lavish place ever anybody had lived in without the money to really do that. And so they came up with things like making the camera very, very low so the room looks huge, like they would cut holes in the floor. They needed to invent fake ceilings because you were low. And then just basically every other camera move that that we know of now is something they came up with. Oh, cool. To trick people. Yeah, which is really cool because I was like a late-in-life viewer of Citizen Kane, and that's another one where it's like, Wow, the reason why I've seen like canted angles in movies is comes from this, and it comes from yeah. because Orson Welles like didn't have any money. Like, it's yeah. it's really really cool. He had some money, but it was the most expensive like experience that had ever been on film. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so he needed to fake it. It's great. He spent. <laughs> $799,000 on the sled, and then the rest of it, you had to figure out. It's a really nice sled. <laughs> There's another one here that's inventing whole genre, whole thing. Night of the Living Dead, 1968. 
And Benny had picked this one out. Yeah. It was sort of like slashers before where we know what they do. We all know what zombies do. Right. Totally. And it is crazy. I don't think we invent a new monster that often. I think like, yeah. you know, before, before zombies, what was it like? Drac- Dracula was, you know, the 1800s where just like a set of rules that sort of got locked in and yeah. and, and stayed around for the next hundred plus years. Yeah. Kind of Frankenstein's maybe. Yeah. yeah Frankenstein's. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but apparently the only reason they made Night of the Living Dead is because they couldn't make their first idea, which was a comedy about teenagers hot riding around space. Mm-hmm. And they just yeah. had, <laughs> and they had all these great expensive ideas, like a, like a wacky sheriff called Sheriff Suck, who would be chasing these teenagers around. This sounds amazing. <laughs> it's so funny because it sounds like, it sounds like something that should have come from George Lucas because it's American graffiti plus Star Wars. Yeah. <laughs> and they had something called, they had this spaghetti monster called The Mess, which was going to be like a garbage disposal that you could just throw stuff in. And because they couldn't afford one The Mess, they decided to make a movie, you know, and eventually was like, all right, well, we can't afford aliens. Maybe it's just earth monsters. All right, we can't afford monsters, but we can still have them eat people. All right, it's just, it's just, pe- just people eating people. We can still have them on earth. <laughs> what if they're just regular people, but they look like especially shitty? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's what zombies are. I love the idea of that being the original script and it just somehow working its way. Like <laughs> script draft like 31. It's just, it becomes Night of the Living Dead. <laughs> right, right. New new colors for pages that yeah. haven't been conceived, but we so, got So yeah, there. we got the new draft of Space Teens and it's really going in a different direction. Yeah. That's <laughs> ah, so great. And then uh, this is another scary one, but also it's a movie that so many of these, they just feel like they were always meant to be made that way. And uh, The Terminator, 1984. And uh, Chase, you'd pick this one out because it's it feels like they just really did so much of it on purpose. Yeah, this one was super fascinating to me because I live, oh, I'm giving too much information about where I live, but uh, I have a, a direct view of the observatory, which is where one of the most iconic scenes in Terminator happens. And yeah. and, and if, if people don't know, there's a Griffith Observatory over LA on a hill. We just have a planetarium up there for some reason. It's beautiful. And the yeah. view, it's funny because like being up there, your view of the city is beautiful, but then if you're on the ground, your view of the observatory is beautiful. It's, yeah, it's, it's great. It's one of like my favorite things about LA. Uh, but one of the most like iconic scenes happens there, which is where Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, appears and then he finds those kind of like gang members or like unruly teens whatever there's somewhere in the middle bill paxton is one of them uh he (laughs) plays a teen and which is very believable and arnold schwarzenegger steals their clothes but that all happens at the observatory and it's it's like truly like such an awesome scene but all the like ominous mist and stuff that is in that scene is pesticide (laughs) because it (laughs) because i guess there was a like a mexican fruit fly scare or something that the year that they were filming the movie yeah um and so instead of having like a fog machine or whatever they just used what was around it's it's just awesome because like that scene looks amazing and oh and they also filmed it without a permit uh, as far as i understand too james cameron shot that totally like under the radar like they just came in like the middle of the night and shot it without a permit which is so cool because you know breaking the law and stuff. Um, (laughs) But it's just funny because like then years later, I mean like the last, before this next one, which is surely going to be amazing, the last bad Terminator sequel was Terminator Genesis where they recreated a lot of scenes from the original Terminator, including that one. And so it's just funny to imagine a much worse director going up there to the observatory and shooting basically the exact same scene, but paying a lot of money for it and using, oh, yeah. <laughs> using a proper fog machine and stuff. And like, there's a CG Arnold Schwarzenegger that has to fight the real Arnold Schwarzenegger. And it's like, man, 
James Cameron shot this for like 15 bucks and you just spent like $4 million on it. <laughs> yeah, like they paid for the pesticides they used. It was a whole right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, because it, uh, it turns out, I had no idea, but in 1982 when they were shooting this, there were fears of a Mexican fruit fly epidemic Yeah, in, in just all of Southern California. It was a pest that was going to come up and eat all our fruit. And so uh, just the city and people were spraying pesticides all over town and there were rolling clouds of them that looked like fog. And yeah, they, they were like, <laughs> well, we can wait for it to clear. We could make our own fog or we just do stuff in the pesticide. Very resourceful. Because <laughs> why not? James Cameron also <laughs> broke the curse that he's a guy who can make a good movie for not very much money, but then you give him a lot of money and he still makes yeah. a good movie. Like yeah. Terminator 2 is still amazing. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and, even better. Yeah. Yeah. And Terminator <laughs> 2, like the idea of like, oh, we're, instead of the bad guy being just Arnold, it's going to be like a skinny guy who turns into liquid metal and shapeshifts. Sounds like it should be way worse, but it's equally cool. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> it is. It's amazing. Also, this is a little off topic, but like taking the villain from the first movie and then making him the hero in the second movie, that's like, that's some wrestling shit. That's yeah. like a, a face yeah. turn. That's it's cool. A, I can't think of many other franchises, oh, except for Fast and the Furious, which does that with every villain who yeah. they've ever had. But it's such a cool idea to take like, okay, this guy was like super charismatic, but evil. And then in the second movie, yeah. he's going to be the hero. He's yeah, actually working on Titanic 2, which stars the iceberg <laughs> <laughs> on its own journey. Come with me if you want to live. The iceberg and the boat are a team now. <laughs> <laughs> and they're trying to stop the rock. Who <laughs> the rock, which is an actual rock yeah, of water, yeah, but yeah. also played by the rock. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> cool. Just checking. We've been talking about how money ultimately kind of poisons the quality of these things, but maybe that is one of the few ways money can be good in the sense that once your movie is a huge hit because of maybe a somewhat unexpected reaction to a character, you know, like maybe that's one of the few ways the money is positive. Like, like they really meant for Arnold to be evil in that first Terminator mm -hmm. and people loved it so much. They were like, I guess he's the hook now. I guess he's yeah. who we're rooting for at this point. I think if you're James Cameron, you just also make a movie so big, it's like you're running out of money every time. Yeah. Because <laughs> no matter how much he has, he runs out of it yeah, yeah. by spending so much. That's true. He does. He has so many Avatar sequels lined up. That's such a thing. That's insane. Is that <laughs> I'm so, I'm more excited to watch what happens with those movies than I am excited to watch those the movies. movies. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like, <laughs> it does feel like if he was going to make sequels, wouldn't they have started by now? When did oh, they first Avatar? They had 10 years. 10 years it's in between. It's been a while. I think, yeah, 09 I mean, for you know, the Avatar, Avatar movies are on Disney's release schedule now because it's now Disney because he took so long that his company got bought by <laughs> wow. another company. I mean, that's a way to get a bigger budget. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, no, twice now he has proven that like Titanic was way over budget and supposed to be a flop. Mm -hmm. Avatar was way over budget and supposed to be a flop. And they both became yeah. like two of the two of, I think, like the number one and number three biggest movie of all time. Yeah, I have yeah. a there's just a, records. I yeah. have a, a movie critic friend of mine has a refrain that is just like never count out. James Cameron. It's like we're all laughing about how like, oh, it's been 10 years since the first Avatar. Like, it, Oh, no, I'm sure once flop. Avatar 2 comes out, it's going to be like huge. Yeah. I just am like, what's taken so long? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then he went on to spend all that money. But when he had no permits, there was one part of the Terminator shoot when, again, I don't, I don't know if people at home know about filming permits, but you have to pay for permission to shoot in L.A. Uh, and most other places. And they were just doing it without it. And one time they got caught and they convinced a cop that a crew member's kid was the director of the student film they were making. Like yeah. It was a student film shoot, so take pity on oh, the student. Amazing. 
I'm sure Cameron started like looping cables or something yeah. to hide. You know? They make some but, grip, yeah. go home and wake up his 10-year-old son. Yeah. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> it sounds like such a sitcom premise where then the kid's like, yeah, and in front of this cop, since I'm the director, like, you have to go and get me snacks. <laughs> this next scene is all boobs. Oh, okay. <laughs> exactly. uh, okay, he's the director, so I guess uh, get ready, boobs. Yeah. <laughs> Can we get a 20 on the boobs? <laughs> and the director gets to drink beer. What the fuck? Uh, he is the director, so As when you're a student <laughs> film director, you get carte blanche to do whatever Guys, you the want. the cops left 20 minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs> or the cop is there and he's like, he's right, underage drinking is legal in this context. If it's in the context of a student film, we have no jurisdiction. <laughs> Jeez, I love that thing of never count out James Cameron. That that feels very true. It, uh, it is weird because I totally want to. Because yeah. these these <laughs> the idea of these sequels seems so insane. But he's he hasn't been wrong yet. Yeah. I didn't yeah, think I didn't think the first it. Avatar was going to be a big hit, and then it fucking was. Well, he's even part of franchises for the correct amount of time. Yeah, you know, like he he does two Terminators, and then that's it. You know, like yeah. he just figures it out. But another another person who is maybe that way is Stallone, because uh, Rocky came up, and some stories we're looking at, and it turns out there's one scene in the first Rocky where it's a really nice date uh, between Rocky and Adrian, where they're all alone at a skating rink, and so it's very it's very cute, and it's just them getting to be by themselves. And Stallone basically made every part of that movie. So he gets all the credit for what they did because they planned to have hundreds of extras <laughs> just packing <laughs> the skating rink, which seems like it would not be fun at all. Then they're like getting run into by people, you know, and stuff. But they, because of budgetary reasons, ended up with this really nice moment. The romance of that reminds me of like every date that's on like The Bachelor or The Bachelorette where they're like, we got you a private concert with like. Yeah. Sturgill Simpson or some like country star that nobody's heard of. And uh, and they're like, oh my God, it's so romantic. You like emptied out this like barn for us to have a private concert. But really, it's just like they got this musician and like didn't put yeah, on we a didn't wanna, concert. We yeah. didn't want to pay a bunch of people. <laughs> yeah. Right. We didn't want to fill the zoo or whatever. Oh, we they would have had to sign so many releases. <laughs> of uh, the whole list of these things, that one was one that was like, oh, that's really cute. Like that one really worked out. Yeah. It's like just nice. Yeah. yeah. But you wouldn't think so because it feels like such a rocky thing to do, you know, yeah. just a weird date. Right. There's a weird date at the zoo in that movie. A lot of dates. There's also a movie here, uh, Clerks. Doesn't really relate to Rocky in any way, but it is a movie. Ben, you picked it out. Oh, it's a movie there's... written and directed by Kevin Smith for almost zero dollars. And yeah, like doing every part of it. Yeah. Yeah. Writing, directing and acting in it. And just like Sylvester Stallone, just like Rocky. It does relate. Really <laughs> hey, it actually kind of does, actually. Yeah, they yeah. are both, like, they are singular forces of yeah. this one guy. Uh, <laughs> and one of the better jokes in that movie is that when he when he shows up for work in the morning to the sort of sort of uh, deli or the, the, what do you call it, bodega, what do you call it, not in New York? Yeah, it's a, it's a, well, a convenience store. A convenience store, yeah. But it's, it's like Jersey, so it's kind of a bodega. Yeah, when he shows up yeah. the convenience store at work, he can't get the metal grate open because someone has shoved gum in the lock. So instead he yeah. spreads a sheet across it and writes, I assure you we're open on it. And the only reason they did that is because they were shooting at night and did not have permission to actually open that grate. <laughs> <laughs> right. they, or if they had opened it, you would have seen that it was night inside. Yeah. It would have not looked like the day. Right. And you Which is, like, it's oh. really, it's really cool because it's one of the most iconic images from that movie. Yeah. If there was a clerk's 
section of Disneyland, the, the <laughs> quick street, the quick sheet. stop would have that right. sh- that sheet up. It, it is like it is one of the best jokes of the movie, honestly. And hold, yeah, holds yeah. up a lot better than most of the other jokes. In that movie. <laughs> <laughs> the, dial, the rapid fire dialogue that is delivered by two non actors. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's that, and then seventy two minutes of blowjob jokes, and yeah. that's. <laughs> An entire the entire A story of the movie is slut shaming someone for yeah. blowing yeah. too many guys. I think that's every Kevin Smith movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah pretty much. <laughs> Kevin Kevin Smith now plays like someone, some film school student from the '90s trying to do an impression of Kevin Smith. Because I think like every like 20 year old in 1997 just saw Reservoir Dogs and Clerks and was like, oh, this is how you write movies. Yeah. <laughs> the characters talk real fast and they talk and they reference Star Wars. That's <laughs> it's basically this podcast mapped onto a movie. It's just people talking about other things that they've seen. Yeah. <laughs> we are right in the thick of summer and summer is prime ice cream season so why don't you dig into some ben and jerry's they are supporting this show and they're just the best ice cream so that works out very well i'm very into it you know those pints you've seen them in stores you've seen maybe ben and jerry's shops if you're one of the towns with those and of all the flavors out there, I'm thinking about half-baked right now. Ah, one of the icons. And it's it's such a team-up of so many different elements of an ice cream. You've got your chocolate. You've got your vanilla. Then you've got gobs of chocolate chip cookie dough and fudge brownies. It's like a bakery exploded into an ice cream store. And it was not a disaster of any kind. It was just great. There are also always new flavors of Ben & Jerry's. I'm constantly telling people about Americone Dream, which has been out for a bit and is amazing. It's a Stephen Colbert ice cream with pieces of cone in the ice cream. Yeah, you don't even have to go to an ice cream shop to get a cone. It's just there. It's all combined. I love it. So treat yourself to your favorite flavor anywhere ice cream is sold or find a new favorite at BenJerry.com. That's B-E-N-J-E-R-R-Y.com. One thing to repeat from the top of the show, the Cracked Podcast is headed to the London Podcast Festival, our first ever show in the UK, our first ever show outside the United States at all. That show is Sunday, September 8th at King's Place in London. A lot of other great Earwolf shows are going too, and you can kind of bundle them all up if you want to. It's really neat. Full information for all that is linked in the food notes, and full excitement for it is throughout my heart. Another one here where it's from that exact same era, Clueless, 1995. That's a movie that, according to various people uh, who care about fashion, grunge was going on, and then Clueless <laughs> killed it. <laughs> Clueless killed uh, grunge? Yeah, oh there's a, we'll link an NPR story where they talk to somebody who wrote a Clueless oral history, and they argue pretty convincingly that clothing was getting dirtier and dirtier mm-hmm. and dirtier, and then Clueless, you had these very specific nice mall clothes. But the original plan for the movie was because uh, Cher uh, was very, very rich. Cher, uh, Alicia Silverstone, not the musician. She was very rich. confusing for a lot of us at the time. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) She she was supposed to wear, like, fashion designer-made clothes, like the nicest things you could possibly get. And then they just didn't have money, so the costume designer went to the mall and got nice mall clothes. But it really makes the movie better because a lot of that movie is about, like, teenagers hanging out and there's that like uh, iconic scene in the mall where uh, Brittany Murphy almost falls to her death which made me and I think everybody terrified of shopping malls yeah. because of the railings you never sit on did Clueless well, also kill shopping malls <laughs> a slow death yeah. thankfully, thankfully she was rescued and is still yeah oh, no. she's still doing great but it I think does make it more powerful that 
actors are actually dressed in like the clothing that those kids would have been wearing. Because it always really yeah. takes me out of something when like, you know, a show is supposed to be about like teens or 20 somethings and they're just in like full design or couture. It's right. Like, yeah. What? <laughs> Yeah, that happens even when the teens are not supposed to be rich. It, it'll right. just be yeah, it actually would have been okay in this movie for sure, at least. Yeah. Yeah, that movie kept a lot of sweatshop employees employed for mm-hmm. a long time, <laughs> which is really great. <laughs> it's hard to imagine that movie without the types of clothing that they wore. Yeah. I guess if it was made today, it would be like H&M or something like that. But like, yeah, know, just yeah. like really like cheap but fashionable stuff. Because yeah. in, in something like I don't know maybe American Vandal, which which is a uh, goofy, but they they look like kids look in high school. Like mm-hmm. I was watching that and I was like, oh yeah, right. But I guess now that I'm thinking about it, there are some like capital L looks in that movie. Like Dion wears that like hat that's like just made of plastic and like one of those hats that like oh, we yeah. give out on like a bar mitzvah stuff, dance floor. <laughs> that, all that stuff came from Spencer gifts. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so like if those were like regular clothes that, that teens were wearing at the time, the 90s were. Yeah, I'm not sure if it's a yeah. heightened reality or they're just rich. I'm not sure what the uh, what the reason for that yeah. is. Because also apparently director Amy Heckerling, she spent a lot of time just around Beverly Hills high schools to to get the dialogue right mm-hmm. and picked up phrases like as if from hearing people say them in life. And so it's good that they also had a costume designer doing that kind of mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. Even there if are it's a some weird characters that wear grunge, like um, what's his name, Brendan uh, Breckenmeyer. Breckenmeyer. Yeah. 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 Oh yeah. Yeah. He's cool. Uh, <laughs> he, but, he's like the skateboardy grunge guy, you know, and uh, like he's sort of like made to seem quite ridiculous. Yeah. Cher Cher has like a whole kind of screed that she goes on against grunge where there's like a slow motion. You see like a bunch of skater guys Mm -hmm. like wearing the big clothes and stuff like that. And she's like, I just don't get guys today. Yeah, yeah. I want to fuck my stepbrother. (laughs) You're like, yeah, Cher, you're right. Well, it's like fuck a, that stepbrother. George Lucas just stands, so standing ovation. <laughs> oh. It's like a pretty conservative movie in a way, because like Paul Rudd is like the little like young corporate American and totally. her stepbrother. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it would be interesting <laughs> to go back and do like an economic look at this. It's, it's a pretty Republican <laughs> film. Well, also, I wonder, especially where it's a movie like this, where it's set in its own present day in its own place, like maybe running out of money helps you get a really realistic version of where you are because you're just grabbing shit from where you are. Yeah, yeah <laughs> totally. Because yeah. you don't have other options Definitely. and, and uh, you can just accidentally nail a place. That's great. And then also you can luck into having no money helping you in the crazy distant future because uh, we've got a particular era of Star Trek here. And I think Benny picked it out. We're looking mainly at like Star Trek four era original cast movies and then the next generation. They, they really lucked out by uh, somehow being broke, even though it's a long running franchise. <laughs> well, it's also just because the Star Trek had moved on to movies at that point, and those movies had lots of money, but the TV show did not. And yeah. they also need to make a show every week. Oh, so that's there's true, this yeah. there's this guy, Michael Akuda, who's the famous designer of all next generation. Yeah. And he was like, All right, so the original sixties, they were kind of mimicking the space technology that sign, which was a lot of buttons, just a lot, a lot of toggles, lots of switches. And he's like, That's not gonna look great. But we need right. to we need to do something that looks futuristic and it also needs to be inexpensive. And they're like, all right, what if it was just flat? What if it was, <laughs> what if it didn't look like anything? Right. And he basically, through thinking about that, invented the iPad. Yeah. He invented touchscreens. Because, <laughs> <laughs> like, everyone's listening to this on something that has a flat design, basically. Yeah. But in the 80s, everything was buttons and switches. And the and best so- thing is, if you're, if, you're, if you're filming and you don't see the screen, someone can just literally run their hands across it. Mm. Yeah. And can, can be doing whatever you want. They don't have to think about what switch I'm flipping or what dial I'm turning. 
Oh, yeah, that's true. And the uh, the other Star Trek example I wanted to bring up was the original series, which literally had no money. Oh, um, sure. Because <laughs> just, there was not a lot of sci-fi on TV at that point. In fact, my favorite, I really like the way the original series was pitched, is it was, uh, what's the name of it? Oh, Wagon Train? It's Wagon Train in Space, because cowboy shows were the most popular at that time. Sure. <laughs> and that's literally right. why it says space, the final frontier, is they're trying to bring people in. They're like, okay, we know space. Sounds a little crazy. <laughs> yeah, but it's, but a, it's, it's just like the West. It's just like a frontier, just a little more final. <laughs> it's like if you kept going West and then just kept going off the planet. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Gene Roddenberry was a flat earther. <laughs> but because they had no money, they were like, oh, we're going to be visiting a bunch of planets in the same way Wagon Train vis- visits a bunch of towns. Yeah. We need to show the ship landing every week oh that's gonna be too expensive how are we gonna get our crew down to the planet oh wait what if there was just kind of some kind of magic transporting technology <laughs> and that's literally how they invented the transporter because it was too expensive to have the ship land and that's now the most iconic image of the star of the star trek franchise yeah is people beaming down to a planet it's like the line people know it's beam me up sky yeah, yeah. yeah. They, they even use it to make fun of it yeah <laughs> <laughs> And it's also just like this and the zombies and there is just how stuff becomes so like that's the thing everybody knows. Like if, if you had had yeah, enough money, right. the, you, you would have done something generic and sort of, you know, first it thought. But because you got pushed a little farther, you actually came up with something that sort of lodged itself in pop culture. Yeah, all the all the iconic parts are because they couldn't pay for something right. boring. Yeah. <laughs> they should cut the budgets of every movie they're making right now <laughs> down to 10% of what they're making, and then we'll get some really interesting shit. <laughs> I mean, half a joke? You know? <laughs> no, no, totally. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. It's like... Except I mean, for James Cameron, I, he still gets a full budget. <laughs> yeah, all that extra money goes to yeah. James Cameron. <laughs> yeah. Well, because I, I honestly, I, I like that there's Star Trek on TV again, and parts of Star Trek Discovery make me feel that way. I'm like, if they didn't have money, there wouldn't be this many scenes in the first few episodes where it's people in full-on prosthetics mm-hmm. just speaking yeah. Klingon to each other. Yeah. Uh, they would, it would be different. <laughs> well, that was another interesting thing, is Michael Westmore. I've been on a Star Trek show for four months, so I know way too much about Star Trek. But uh, oh, my, yeah. Michael mm-hmm. Westmore was the original makeup artist and he had a rule which was that you don't cover the actor's face with prosthetics one because cool. they, they can give a performance that way and two it was just cheaper than doing a full pull-on mask yeah both uh, a good reason and a money reason <laughs> at the same time and so i feel like discovery has violated that rule a little bit by putting those huge klingon faces on people yeah. and when you watch it you just don't feel anything you're like looking at rubber you're looking yeah. like a, a pile of rubber as opposed to like an actual human performance He's yeah. like forehead or ears. That's all you got. Because <laughs> and even maybe as I, chin. <laughs> and as I've watched it progress, I think they've kind of moved away from those scenes too. Because yeah, both yeah. the money and the it's just hard to get stoked about orcs. Like it's yes. hard to really. <laughs> After feel a certain a lot. point, there's only so only so many like appendages you can put on someone's head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you kind of you're kind of like asking the audience to buy in like, look, just it's an alien, okay? That's yeah. for the for the purpose of the story, it's an alien. You're making the jump. It doesn't matter how much more rubber we put on their face. You know, it's not yeah. gonna like at a certain point it's diminishing returns. Yeah, yeah. And that's also so cool with the the next gen version where they they were like, ah, we'll just make them flat. Star Trek has been such a thing of prototyping future tech we actually have in life. And and they they kind of prototyped iPads and, and yeah, touch screens yeah, yeah. And, and worked it out. I mean, they, they literally called them pads in the show. P-A-D-D or something. Personal access something device. Yeah, that's almost what iPads are called. <laughs> <laughs> but the, th- the thing that they do is they there's a lot of like handing pads to other people, like as if they were notebooks, as opposed to like they, they didn't get the initial set of like, oh, I can just send, you know, 
a oh, yeah, yeah. I can just send data to your bat. I, <laughs> right. They didn't think about the idea that if a character on Star Trek hands another one a pad, then that person's going to see all their like porn <laughs> searches and stuff. <laughs> yeah, they, they never use wipes Guys, on anything. And uh. Anson Halley never wants to give anybody her pad. <laughs> <laughs> just I'll, I'll eat to send it to you. <laughs> I was trying to think of a Star Trek-y version of email, and all I could think of was e-sent. Well, it's pretty yeah. much yeah. The last season yeah. they come up with like faxing or something like that. Well, and because also, really, the other famous sci fi TV show is Doctor Who and probably even had less money uh, starting out than Star Trek did uh, because they were on the BBC's dime instead of Lucille Ball's. But they, uh, it came when it came out in 1963, the TARDIS device from Doctor Who that he goes around in, it's famously just shaped like a police box from 1960s England. And it feels like they just want, they really wanted to make that cute choice. They actually wrote it where the machine would have a chameleon circuit where it can turn into anything. Mm-hmm. And then they realized that costs money. And so then they just wrote in that the circuit shorted out. <laughs> and that's why it looks like that. So uh, what, what is a police box? Are there it's where po- they keep the police. And <laughs> they're not being used, like if I, obviously. If, yeah, if I open the door, will there be police inside? Or do I hide? I, I, some, yeah, if there is a crime in England, you, un- <laughs> you unlock the police box and they just spill right, out. Come on out, guys. We need <laughs> I was almost out of air. They, they're blinking because they haven't seen the sun in a while. They're actually rooting for crime so that they get to breathe air. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I I figure it's like a phone booth for calling the police. I don't I don't really this one, know. This one's really interesting to me. I'm not I'm not a, I'm not a Doctor Who person at all, but I do think it's very interesting that they came close to having it be anything because I feel like the thing that you want if you're doing like a time travel property is you want the iconic thing. Like, and we've seen that again and again with other things. Like Bill and Ted have. The phone booth and Back, oh, to, yeah, Back to the Future too. has the DeLorean. Like, yeah. you want to have the iconic d- contraption that gets you to the thing. I don't know. I don't think this was similarly a, uh, a a money thing. But the fact that the Millennium Falcon can't go to hyperspace for most of the movie is like a, it's a very like iconic choice. Like you, the thing yeah. of having it be broken, like the police box, is is such a more interesting choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um, great. Because then it can be a running joke, and it's kind of funny. But then you also have this iconic look of this thing. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I think that not being a Doctor Who person coming into this with no knowledge of it whatsoever, I think that's a good choice. <laughs> <laughs> that is a really good point about how, like, the lack of money then pays off in, like, huge dividends. Because, like, they probably sell so many, like, TARDIS box toys and, like, oh, you yeah, know, T-shirts yeah. with it. And, like, they probably have made so much money over this well, thing that was caused by them not having one. Yeah, it becomes an yeah. icon rather than it being this changeable thing that's something different every time. Especially because even the character changes all the time. There's not yeah. just one look of the doctor. Yeah. It's it's the one constant over all the years <laughs> right. is what this box looks like. It is interesting that also that like we're talking about these things becoming iconic. They, it never happens when you're trying to make something iconic. Right. It kind of has to come from like a real place of either like desperation. We don't have any money or just arbitrary decision because that's what it was available that day. Maybe a lot of the history of TV spinoffs, too, is is mm-hmm. such a thing where they they just started with all the things they thought would be everybody's favorite thing. And no, it turns out it's Frasier or it turns out <laughs> it's or, or even a show where, you know, uh, Family Matters is a spinoff. And then even from there, Urkel turns out to be the thing everybody wants. Right. Like, yeah. like 
like through the the stress testing of airing a TV show every week, you find out, oh, like my 12th idea for something in this show is uh, 10 seasons. Like I mean, that's, that's the whole thing. That, that is one of my favorite parts of working in TV is just kind of the iterative process of finding out what works and what doesn't work. Where like a movie, you kind of have to do everything before you really get an audience's reaction to it. Yeah. Like TV, you kind of get to evolve with an audience. Hopefully, hopefully. I don't know. I haven't worked yeah. on that many season twos of things. Yeah. <laughs> And for a movie example, that that Back to the Future that you bring up, Chase, is such a, a dead-on because you mentioned briefly that it, it was originally going to be a pickup truck with a refrigerator in it. And I believe then also there was a laser in the refrigerator. Oh, yeah, and, and there's then, a laser, and then they were going to drive into, like, a nuclear explosion. That's, like, five steps beyond <laughs> what it needed to be, which is so crazy because, like— it's like, yeah. just do one thing. And I mean, Robert Zemeckis like loves to overcomplicate things. He's like, he's the guy who's like, <laughs> let's do Beowulf, but also everyone's a cartoon. Like, why? Yeah. No, just yeah. do, <laughs> like, just go with the simplest idea. So, sometimes that's the one that, that works. It's just fascinating that they ended up with what became. I mean, like, can you imagine the Back to the Future poster? If it, if, if, if like, they're standing next to the thing, checking their watch, you know, that iconic look. And, but it's a pickup truck with a refrigerator in the back, and there's a laser, and there's a nuclear explosion going on behind that. Like, so no, cool. just be a car. Just be a car. Right. <laughs> They even, and they even uh, kind of did it in the Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull Kingdom yes, movie. Yes, which is funny because uh, so. Steven Spielberg was a producer on uh, Back to the Future. And it se- so it seems like he kind of used this idea later. It, yeah. He's, for some reason, is so into the refrigerator idea. And then it becomes <laughs> the most, like, maybe the most hated thing about Indiana Jones 4 is the refrigerator scene. Right. <laughs> yeah. So a it's a like, franchise that already hmm. worked a bunch. And yeah, then they yeah. were like, we're just going to do the thing that doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. Come Stick on. Stick with your instincts. People don't want to see a refrigerator play a major role in a Hollywood blockbuster movie. <laughs> There's also a TV show here that I can only see one way, which is Breaking Bad. But Hallie picked it out because it's it, it was an accident. It's great. Yeah. I learned from Crack that Breaking Bad was originally Vince Gilligan wanted to set it in Riverside, California. Um, <laughs> and then Sony was like, no, what about if you put it in New Mexico because you'll get a 25% tax rebate, which is like <laughs> Incredible, and he was like, "Okay, I guess I will." And now it's like that is everything that we associate with not only that show, but then Better Call Saul, the spinoff, and it's like yeah. it's become like such an important part of not only the show's look and the tourism industry of like Albuquerque, but even the plot <laughs> of the show and like how it gets involved with like you know the specific like drug scene in New Mexico and its right. influence from Mexico. I actually have the Breaking Bad pilot on my computer. And I pulled pulled it up and I read the first paragraph. I was like, oh, yeah, this is very different. Uh, It's deep blue sky overhead, fat, scuddy clouds. Below them, black and white cows graze the rolling hills. This could be one of those California It's the Cheese commercials. Which I I don't (laughs) know. That's so good. It's a a different show. It's it's one paragraph, but that makes it a different show. If there were cows, like, I don't even know. Yeah, Yeah, because Riverside is just kind of out east of L.A., not even that far away. Mm -hmm. And it's it's a little deserty, maybe. But but like like that description says, it's just a, a... nicer different place right not, not very even like yeah. pastoral and americana in a way that like the starkness and like the westerniness of yeah. new mexico and like then yeah. i think this was something vince gilligan said that after it became set in new mexico he like reconceived it almost as like a modern day western because of the way the landscape yeah it feels like yeah. if it was in riverside like you lose the immediacy of the, even though it's in southern california you lose the immediacy of the Mexico stuff because it's not just right over the border like yeah. that. And it's like, man, yeah. it being in the desert and stuff. And I think of so many scenes like 
the like iconic it's, the it's, RV the yeah. RV in the desert like what what if you don't have that then what is it then what's the show right it's um, the that's the poster that's yeah. everything <laughs> what's also funny is Vince Gilligan probably thought he was being smart by setting it in Riverside he was like right outside LA it'll yeah, be easy it'll be so you know easy. save save money and then AMC was like no cheaper yeah <laughs> right because that tax credit if I if I understand right every dollar they spend in New Mexico they get twenty five percent back mm-hmm. oh well yeah which, which like, is a lot stretches their production budget hugely <laughs> yeah. And like you said with tourism, like there's been so far no reason in my life to go visit Albuquerque, New Mexico. <laughs> but the only yeah. thing that would make me want to is to see these locations. Like they are iconic. It's it's uh, yeah, totally. Well, this I, tax credit was like the smartest thing that New Mexico ever did because I'm sure they've like made a lot of money from people coming there to see the Breaking Bad yeah. locations. Well, I actually, when I when I originally moved to LA, it was driving from Chicago and it was like, okay, we can go through the Rockies or the Southwest. And because of the Grand Canyon and Breaking Bad, we <gasps> went through the Southwest. I, I wanted to see Albuquerque because it was on the show uh, by accident. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Did you like drive by the house where the pizza gets thrown on the roof? <laughs> <laughs> those people, leave those, if you're listening to this, please. Stop throwing pizza on roof. Leave those poor roof. people alone. Stop throwing pizza on their roof. They've had enough. Uh, <laughs> I took pictures in their living room. Uh, that was great. I stole their baby just to recreate that scene. <laughs> they were not happy. But then as a plus, I got to see the inside of an Albuquerque jail. <laughs> when will, cause we'll link in the footnotes. It's a interview with Vince Gilligan in slant magazine where he describes all this stuff. And he partly picked Riverside, like you say, Chase, because he wasn't thinking about the, the border so much and all that. He was, yeah. but he was thinking about where would be a place for meth. And then in the interview, he says, later I realized there's a meth problem kind of everywhere. So I really could have done I also well, thank have God. To. Thank God, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> but and, and like you said, Hallie, like he, he realized, oh, it can be a Western now. Like it, it's less of a suburbs and slightly rural place thing. It's it's the West. He's right. a cowboy. Like with the, the TARDIS thing, it's just so immediately iconic. Like what other show can you name that took place in Albuquerque? It's right. why would you not claim like plant a flag, like claim yeah. something for yourself? Like no one does a police box as a as a, you know, travel. Like, yeah, it, I feel like I, I guess we've seen multiple times where these like budget limitations can lead to these things of like picking something that no one's ever chosen before. Yeah. I, I also understand process wise why if you were like, all right. You're setting a series about a guy becoming a drug dealer. Where do you put it? Then I, if I have to lean back and think about it, it like is so much less exciting that someone goes, okay, it's in New Mexico. And then suddenly I have like a dozen ideas related to setting in New Mexico as opposed to just trying to find the perfect spot on the map where to put my TV show. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Just get get those decisions made by somebody else, please. Yeah. I'm very tired. <laughs> <laughs> We've also got a franchise that I think is still going and since the 60s, mm-hmm. which is Planet of the Apes, first movie in 1968. And the original script plan that they couldn't afford to do was to make it like a modern ape city. Like it's exactly like now or, you know, when they made it. But it's it's uh, it's downtown New York full of apes. And, yeah. and there's a movie theater for apes with movies in the or uh, monkeys in the movie. Everything. <laughs> Unfortunately, they blew the whole budget on those amazingly convincing ape masks. <laughs> I This one's surprising because it's very hard. To, obviously, it's very hard to picture the like last scene of the movie. It doesn't really work if they're living in like a modern world it feels like you want to see Charlton Heston crash into a place that feels like that's kind of the misdirect it feels like you want to see them not be up to our level of like civilization or whatever or or like the end doesn't feel like it quite works 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like that's also the most classic movie compromise, especially when you're adapting something. It's like it's a world full of apes. There are apes everywhere. Apes, apes, apes. And then your producer's like, we, you, we got, you got ten apes. <laughs> <laughs> Do what you want, but there's ten of them. <laughs> you can breed them, but it'll take a while. <laughs> like I think even even Ghostbusters, Dan Aykroyd's original script, which I think we mentioned, like has it was supposed to be Ghostbusters were a thing. We're all over the country. You know, there were franchises oh, of Ghostbusters. Wow. They're and all then, getting blown by ghosts. <laughs> <laughs> Ghost Felicia, coast to coast. <laughs> <laughs> and then it was like, no, we can afford full go- we, four Ghostbusters. That's all. That's what makes sense. That's what we can afford. <laughs> <laughs> Even that, it's like, we have three and we're adding the black one way later. <laughs> we didn't want to. Because <laughs> also with uh, making Planet of the Apes a, a modern, super like our city's city, does the ending work? Like, how how mad can you be at apes for building exactly right. the same kind of planet? <laughs> yeah, they, they they did fine. Like, they're doing about what we're doing. <laughs> I also I haven't seen the movie, so I might be talking out of my ass here. But like, isn't the whole point of the movie that the ending is like a surprise that it's our yeah. planet? Yeah, and if it looks yeah. like our planet the whole time, we're gonna be like, yeah, right. We know. Like, if there's oh, like a, if, moved in. Right? Yeah. If, if there's well, a, no, <laughs> if there's an ape Times Square with an ape Bubba Gum Shrimp Company. <laughs> and an ape red lobster, you're gonna kinda it tips the it I'd tips be like, the joke I guess they turned ours into an ape one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Instead of like I guess they made a whole new one that happens to look exactly like ours. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, I guess you were saying you were saying that in the book it is pretty one to one with human civilization. Well it's a yeah, it was originally Rod Serling's script and it, he, script, sorry. he wanted to make it it's like a modern twentieth century with bustling cities and vehicles and there was a part where they walked past a movie marquee and it's two ape movie stars kissing and oh, Okay. So it is pretty one to one because I was I was like yeah. no Hallie it's a they, they made a different type of city but apparently they no did. it's ours because yeah. the, they, they came in all the, all the apes just came and knocked on our doors one day yeah hey we'll be moving in <laughs> I actually I didn't know it was Rod Serling until just now that's that's amazing um, yeah well because according to this is that Carolyn Burke cracked article seven times being totally cheap resulted in movie magic apparently the producers thought they basically did that thing you said Ben of you have ten apes that's it they yeah. thought it would be too hard to do it. <laughs> entire city of apes and, and all also, this. And also, we know what it would look like if they had done that because that's the ending of the shitty 2001 Tim Burton Planet of the Apes. Yeah. Oh, right, with Is the it, Lincoln they, Memorial. They, they land on literally exactly Washington, D.C., except Mark Wahlberg astronaut scientist Mark Wahlberg uh, sees that the Lincoln Memorial wow. has, a, has an ape head. Yeah. Which is literally no explanation yeah, for a justification. Just, yeah. But it's Ape Lincoln. <laughs> yeah, that's the last line in the movie. <laughs> and he does the with, end. And he does, <laughs> Mark Wahlberg does it with that exact same smirk, puts his hand under his For the record, I did not do that, but I'm doing it. <laughs> <laughs> and then it irises in. <laughs> and right, he winks. Right. He, and try, then, he tries uh, to fight his way out of the whack. iris. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Porky Pig. And yeah. it all, just, no, no, no. <laughs> oh, that's ape, folks. <laughs> Folks, that is the episode for this week. My thanks to Hallie Cantor, Ben Joseph, and Chase Mitchell for for getting a, a whole team together. We piled into the studio and we got to explore how everything I have liked worked out because they didn't have cash. It's just it's just very exciting to think of that way, uh, especially if I or you or other people are trying to make stuff now. It's nice to know that not only is not having a lot of money not a crippling, deal-breaking problem, it might lead you to some good ideas. Uh, so I, I hope that's kind of motivating for anybody out there. 
And in our food notes, you will find all of the sources we drew on today. There's some cracked articles in there. In particular, Seven Times Being Totally Cheap Resulted in Movie Magic by Carolyn Burke. Also, Seven Iconic Scenes We Only Got Because the Movie Was Broke by J.M. McNabb. Those were two big ones there. Also, there's a footnote of one movie we didn't happen to get to, which is Dr. No. That's uh, the first Bond movie. I feel like I bring it up a lot because it is such a case of lots and lots of different creative things going right when they needed to, despite a lack of money, to launch uh, the, the longest running film franchise and, uh, and my favorite. I'm really into it. Also, I apologize if there's a franchise that's run longer, but they're making the 25th one. It's, it's a pretty sizable chunk of movie. And there was a situation in Dr. No where the lair of the villain was supposed to be a Japanese coastal castle, but it's very expensive to get a castle. And so they decided it was cheaper to use a volcano. And that kind of invented the whole Bond movie thing of a lair that is not just a structure, but is something even spookier and even more powerful and became parodied in Austin Powers and then kind of templated a lot of villain stuff. That was all budget. Also, we will have a link to a picture of one room in the film. It's from a scene where Professor Dent, who is uh, pretending to be an expert helping Bond, but is really a flunky of Dr. No, uh, Professor Dent comes to pick up a tarantula to then take to kill James Bond with, is his plan. And the production designer for the movie was named Ken Adam. He has since gone on to be one of the most iconic production designers of all time. But he had only $475 for the entire set of that room, for the entire setup that the tarantula would be in and everything else. He ended up creating a very minimalist and very awesome room out of that. They even did a thing where Dr. No was on an intercom instead of being in the room and the the minimal, spare, creepy thing that they achieved because they didn't have money to put more stuff in the room ended up being another defining thing for those Bond villain layers and by extension, their whole personality and vibe. So I hope you'll check out those food notes because uh, movies and TV are visual and you get to see a lot of the stuff that we talked about by checking that out. And speaking of sources for things, the Budos Band is an amazing music group. They are the source of our theme music, Chicago Falcon. This episode was engineered by Sam Kiefer and edited by Chris Souza. If you love this episode, that's great. If you hated it, let me know about it on social media. That's right, social media. A space where I have seen it proposed that tweeting should cost money. You know, like it should be a buck per tweet. I think it would revolutionize the entire platform. It would drive some people off of it, though, too. So ultimately a bad idea, except for being a great idea. My own Twitter account, where I would plunk down a dollar for every Snoopy post, is at Alex Schmitty. My Instagram is at Alex Schmittstagram. And I'm on the wider internet at my website, alexschmitty.com. It's got my show dates, my fun email newsletter of free internet stuff tips that you might like, and so much more. And I'm here to say we will be back next week with more Cracked Podcast. So how about that? Talk to you then. This has been an Earwolf production, executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Chris Bannon, and Colin Anderson. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Earwolf.